My wife and I stopped watching the news a couple of years ago. It used to be that I would get home from work, I would uh, play with the kids, we'd wrestle on the floor, or Jenna would um, put some dinner together, and the news would be on the background, whether it was five o'clock or six o'clock. And then we realized, wait a sec, the news is pretty depressing. And then you would start at that five o'clock hour and you'd hear the main headlines of the day. And it would say things like, dozens of kids are missing from school because of respiratory illness. And you go, oh. Well, that's not good. Over the next week, expect a 20 to 30 cent jump in the gas prices. Oh, well, that's not enjoyable. On the day that I wrote this intro, front page of the Edmonton Journal's website, Edmonton police offer starting trial for sexual assault case. You go, man, this is discouraging. But maybe nationally, things are gonna get a little bit better. And then you hear Hurricane Fiona, 700 million damage. Insurance won't cover all of it. Housing crisis. Expect the market to drop 25% over the next three to four months. What about globally? Because of what's happening in the war in Ukraine, people all across Europe are wondering, how am I going to heat my house this winter? And people are already trying to figure out how they're going to do that. And then they'll just throw in a, ca a casual line. Putin's talking about maybe having nuclear war exist. But don't worry, at quarter to the hour, Bernadette the bulldog had a litter of 12 puppies. Isn't that great, female anchor? It sure is, male anchor. My daughter might be really excited for one of those puppies. <laughs> you think, did you just say Putin's gonna nuke the whole world and now we're talking about puppies? But we can't do anything about it. We can't put our head in the sand because this news is real. Two of those dozens of kids that had respiratory issues were my own. And they were home for school for basically the first couple weeks of September. Anybody who drives a car looks at the gas prices and goes, it just jumped 30 cents in one week. How am I going to pay for that? National Post this past week, two out of three families, which means dozens of you in this room, are wondering, how do I pay all my bills and still put food on the table? So what do we do when it feels like there's despair? What do we do when we feel depressed? When we wonder, God, are you out there? Are you listening? Do you know that my monthly costs have gone up six, $700 in the last few months? What are you gonna do, God? Is there any end to this? I don't know how I'm gonna make bill payments. I don't know how I'm gonna continue on, continuing on. I don't know what rent is going to look like or a new house or the house that I currently have with a mortgage rate that just increased. What do I do, God, in the midst of all of this? But we're not alone. This isn't a brand new idea. This isn't a, an issue that's only for the 21st century. This is an issue that's been going on for thousands of years. It's an issue that God is going to address in today's message from Exodus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the book of Exodus, written 3,500 years ago and still speaking words of encouragement to us this day. May you use this book, the second book of the Bible, to bring hope and joy and redemption to a people that's wondering, what do we do next? It was written about the people of Israel, but it still matters to us today in the 21st century. God, we pray that my words would fall down, that your words would be lifted up, and that you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would be an encouragement to all of us this morning. We pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Unfortunately, the clicker is not working today, so you'll hear me say next slide about 27 times this morning. Daniel, next slide, please. 
If you have your Bibles with you, please open them up to Exodus chapter five, Exodus chapter five. Exodus is the second book of the Bible, really easy to find. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one in the pew racks in front of you, download the app onto your smartphone. The big numbers are the chapter numbers, small numbers are the verse numbers, and we are gonna be going through Exodus really quickly. The book is 40 chapters long. We're gonna cover the entire book in eight weeks, so we are gonna be humming right along. But for those of you who missed last week or just need one of those summary recaps, here's what's taken place so far. At the end of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, Joseph, one of the 12 sons of Israel, is living in Egypt. His dad and his brothers eventually come down to live with him, and Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, loves having them there. And so he welcomes all of Joseph's family, about 70 in total. That's the end of Genesis. You flip over to the next chapter, and we get Exodus chapter 1. 400 years has passed. The Israelites multiplying like rabbits. Commentators believe there's about two million of them at this time. And Pharaoh, the new king of Egypt, is not impressed. He thinks to himself, if I'm attacked from other countries and these Israelites don't like what's going on here, they're going to rebel against me and there is no way I'll be able to control that. So I'm going to put them into incredible forced labor. I'm going to make their lives so difficult. And not only that, but one way to quench a rebellion is to not even let it start. Any Israelite boys who are born, off with their heads. Murder them, throw them into the Nile. And so the Israelites cry out, next slide please. The end of chapter two is this great prayer and they cry for rescue from slavery comes up to God and God hears their groaning and God remembers his covenant with Abraham, Isaac and with Jacob. The name Jacob and Israel are interchangeable. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. Exodus chapter three, this incredible calling of Moses. God speaks to Moses through a burning bush and says to Moses, you are my chosen instrument. You are my divine messenger to go into the nation of Egypt and pull my people Israel out from Egyptian captivity and I'm going to take them to the promised land. And we talked about what this looks like and what this means. And we said, you know, it's, it's rather scary. Moses doesn't know how to talk. Moses doesn't know how to interact with people. And so God has to show him time and time again, I am with you. I will speak through you. I will send your brother Aaron to help you. This is the last verse of chapter four where we finished last week. Next slide, please. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. So of course, this is good news, right? It's smooth sailing from here. Moses and Aaron are gonna walk into the palace of the king of Egypt, of Pharaoh, and they are going to say, let my people go, and all is going to be smooth. Genesis, pardon me, Exodus 5, verse one. Next slide, please. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. I should have brought the clickers, not working anyways, and just dropped it. It's a, it's a mic drop, right? Take that, Pharaoh, my God against your God. What are you gonna do? Nothing. This is the first time in all of scripture that we read the phrase, thus says the Lord. It's this incredible statement of authority, this statement of power. My God against your God. My God who is real, your God who doesn't exist. My God is going to win. There is nothing you can do against it. We will be the champions in the end. Throughout the rest of the Old Testament, the prophets and others will continue to use this phrase, thus says the Lord. It's the statement of belief. It's a statement of authority. It's as much good news for the person who is speaking as those who are hearing. How could Pharaoh possibly reject this? Next verse, please. 
Next slide, pardon me. But Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. And so Moses and Aaron are thinking, oh shoot, this is not what we expected. The Israelites listened. The leaders of the Israelites listened. Why isn't Pharaoh listening? I am saying exactly what God called me to do. He's not though. If you go back to Genesis 3.18, God says to Moses, when you go and see Pharaoh, please say, please let us go. And he doesn't, so that's on him. But anyways, Pharaoh says, you are not walking out of here. That is not going to happen. Imagine you were one of the people in that courtroom in Egypt, and you're one of Pharaoh's attendants, and you are standing beside the most powerful man in the world. And he's seated on his throne in the midst of this courtroom with all of his splendor, all of his glory, and two Israelite slaves, both of them north of 80 years old, have the audacity to come in and demand that they be let go. And Pharaoh says, no, I'm not afraid of you. Who is your God? The God of the Israelites? The God of the powerless? The God of the slaves? The God of the homeless? There is nothing you can do. I am not letting you go. When Moses and Aaron realize their initial request isn't going to work, now they decide to be a little bit more polite. This is verses three to 14. If you enjoy following along, I always preach from the ESV. Chapter five, three to 14. Then they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Go back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, behold, the people of the land are now many and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it. They are idle, lazy. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to their lying words. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, complete your work, your daily task each day is when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom, Pharaoh, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, why have you not done all the task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? In ancient writings, you repeat what you want to emphasize. And the author of Exodus, probably Moses himself, could not be more emphatic. We see it in verses 6 and 7. We see it in verses 10 and 11. We see it in verses 15 following, which we'll get to in just a minute. Keep making just as many bricks, but gather your own straw. We don't want to get our hands dirty. Next slide, please. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you any straw. Go and get your straw yourselves wherever you'll find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. Thus says Pharaoh. Pharaoh equates himself with God. You think your God can just show up and say, thus saith the Lord, I am God, I am king, I am the one who rules the Egyptians, and I will rule you lowly slaves. Thus says Pharaoh. 
three times in this chapter alone, you will make just as many bricks and you will have no um, straw to do it with. You'll gather it yourself. It's like a marquee with flashing lights with neon red arrows pointing at it. The author of Exodus is saying, do you realize how hard this work is? I don't wanna downplay the difficulty that any of us in this room might be going through. Because if the National Post is correct that two out of three families are struggling, some of you are here going, Dave, I need this message today. I don't know how I'm gonna put food on the table and make rent at the same time. Do you have any idea the mental health issues I'm wrestling with? Because I can't take in all this information from the world around me and be a contributing member of society. I'm addicted to alcohol. I have problems with relationships. I don't know how to find employees and my business is suffering. The despair feels overwhelming. And yet if we're being intellectually honest, it's even worse for the Israelites. Imagine this. It's harvest time. I realize most of the farmers have probably collected all their harvest. But imagine the government said, farmers, collect the harvest. No tractors. You teachers, you're complaining about large class sizes. Forget it. Budget is cut. We are removing half of the teachers. All the class sizes doubled. You're an accountant, an engineer, an architect, a lawyer. You want to use your computer? Not anymore. No computers for you. You work in construction? Great. No power tools. But all of you keep doing just as much work as you were doing before. And by the way, if you don't do as much work as you were doing before, we are going to beat you bloody. We are going to take whips and just hack at your back. Because obviously you're lazy. Accomplish the same amount of work you've done before. And you would go home devastated. Physically overwhelmed. Emotionally distraught. God, where are you? Do you hear our prayer, God? What happened? I thought you were coming to rescue us. So the foremen think to themselves, well, I gotta do something. Picking up in verse 15, the foremen of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, make bricks. Behold, your servants are beaten, for the fault is in your own people. But Pharaoh said to them, you are idle, you are idle. That is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. That idea just keeps getting repeated. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that there was, they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, the Lord look on you and judge you because you have made a stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. That went downhill real fast. The end of chapter four, worship. God has sent Moses and he is going to rescue the people of Israel. The end of chapter five, Moses and Aaron, we hate you. You are utterly despised in our sight. But do you know the worst part of all? Who do the Israelites turn to when things go bad? Take another look at verse 15 and 16. Next slide, please. The foremen of the people of Israel came and they cried to who? To Pharaoh. And what do they say? Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants. Yet they say to us, make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. 
Listen to this, and if you're a note taker, it's wildly important. Next slide, please. The plagues not only function so Egypt can see how great God is, but God also wants Israel to see how great he is. Israel, are you ready to see my redemptive power? Do you believe that I'm capable of doing this? But it's also this great reminder for us, where do we go when life gets difficult? Because the Israelites, they went to the source of their issue. Pharaoh made our lives difficult, we'll go back to Pharaoh. I'm struggling with money, I'll just have to work harder and pick up more overtime or get some side gig. Where do you go? Is the answer in the bottom of the bottle? And I'm just gonna drink more because then my pain will go away. Is the answer in a bad relationship or maybe it's the relationship on screen and just more pornography, maybe that will take it away. Is the issue to shop online and maybe there's some retail therapy and if I spend something, well, that will make my life easier somewhere else. Is the answer maybe I just need to play a little bit more video games and just get away and some, enter some fantasy or I'll binge a show on Netflix, that will make life better. The problem with the Israelites is they're turning to the source of their problem in hopes to find answers to their problem. It's not gonna work. God wants us to come to him, to find comfort in him, and to be rescued and redeemed by him. Verse 21 is the depths of despair, but things are about to turn around. Next slide, please. Then Moses turned to the Lord, verse 22, and said, oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Even Moses is expecting immediate deliverance. God, when you said go and speak to the leaders of the Israelites and go to the Israelites themselves, they immediately responded. So certainly Pharaoh's going to do the same. And this is the problem if you've come from a background or heard the idea of the health and wealth gospel. Well, if I come to Jesus, everything's going to be fine. No, it won't. It won't. But what we have in Jesus, what we have in our church family is people who will walk with you through the difficulties and through that despair. Next slide, please. Moses is not off the hook, but Moses does realize I'm going to go to the source of all my strength, the source of the one who sees all, knows all, hears all. Abraham was told in Genesis chapter 12, I'm going to use you to be a blessing to all people. By Genesis chapter 15, he says, God, if that's true, where's my son? But he goes to God. Job, who has had an incredibly good life turned immediately difficult, cries out to God, why do you see me as your enemy, God? David, who is a man after God's own heart, says to God in a prayer in Psalm chapter 10, verse one, why do my enemies surround me, God? They're all going to God himself. Next slide, please. Tucked away at the end of the minor prophets at the end of the Old Testament is this beautiful introduction to the book of Habakkuk. How long, O Lord, must I cry for help and you do not listen? How long do I cry out violence and you do not save? When something is going wrong, who do you turn to? Who do you look to? Who do you believe is going to rescue you? This is the despair. And it's exactly the halfway part of the sermon. The redemption is always better. And that's where we turn our attention to next. God hears you. God sees you and he is always working. Next, line, uh, next slide, please. The Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh for with a strong hand, he will send them out and with a strong hand, he will drive them out of his land. 
Moses was just in Pharaoh's courtroom and Pharaoh says, you want to see how strong I am? I'm going to place a burden on your people. The quota remains the same, but no straw. You've got to figure it out. And God says, you want to see how strong I am? It is by Pharaoh's hand that I'm going to transform him to send you out of Egypt. That is incredible power. God would have, could have overwhelmed Pharaoh all at once. But he says to Moses, he says to all of the Israelites, he says to all of the Egyptians, and he says to us today, you want to see power? Sit back and watch. As we read the next seven verses, see if you can track how many times God refers to himself in these verses. They are incredible. Chapter six, two to eight. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the promised land, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard their groanings of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves. I remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord." I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people. I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for possession. I am the Lord. Powerful powerful seven verses. 17 times God says, I am. And if you are a note taker and waiting for the good news, it starts now. God remembers his promises. Well, for the ESV, this chunk two to eight is one paragraph. If you have an NIV or another translation, it might be broken up from two to five and then from six to eight. Here's why that's important. In in verses two to five, God says, I remember my covenant. I have not forgotten you. In verse three, it stands out as a little bit unusual. He says, I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name that I did not make myself fully known to them. Listen to this. Abraham knows God as promise maker. Moses sees God as promise keeper. For the Israelites, pardon me, for the patriarchs, we are going to live by faith that God will eventually do something. For the Israelites, they are living by sight because God is going to walk with them through the desert for 40 years and then lead them into the promised land. Perhaps a paraphrase of verse three would be helpful. I appear to the patriarchs, but only partially. Verse six to eight show us what it means to be incorporated into the promise of God. If you take another look at these three verses, in only three verses, God says, I will seven times. Three verses, seven promises. For the note takers, promises one and two are all about liberation. God will rescue the Israelites from the burden of Egyptians and from slavery. This is the promise even 3,500 years later we hold on to. If God rescued us from death into life, then certainly God can take care of whatever situation we're in right now. It's easy for him. God can do that. Next slide, please. In Galatians, uh, the apostle Paul writes this. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then. Do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Promise three is about redemption. Redemption is a financial term. Redemption means that you will go into the slave market and buy back a slave. 
For those of you who enjoy the Old Testament, this is the book of Ruth. It's the nearest kinsman coming back and buying their kin who has been sold into slavery. And here is God the Father saying, my children, Israel, I will buy them back. God purchased us at the cost of his son. Jesus loves you so much that he died for you. The Holy Spirit lives you, loves you so much that he's living inside of you. This is the good news. Promises four and five are about adoption. I was thinking about it this morning, how many families in our church have adopted kids? How many more families in our church are talking about adopting kids? Think about the cost that goes into that. You travel overseas. You literally pay money, tens of thousands of dollars to bring a child back home from Africa. You fight with foreign governments. You spend financial and emotional resources to bring that child into your home. Now think about your friends who have adopted kids and how much they love their adopted kids. How much more does God love you and me? Promises six and seven are about possession. Have you seen some of the pictures um, coming out of Ukraine? Over the last number of months, um, some people have even taken these color pictures, they're only six months old, and made them black and white. And people think, oh, that must be Nazi Germany, and it's brand new. And there's these three-year-olds and these five-year-olds and these eight-year-olds, and they're just clinging to mom and dad. And mom and dad might have a suitcase behind them, there's probably a few pairs of pants and a few pairs of shirts, and that is secondary because they are holding on to their children with all their might. And if these refugees are holding on to their kids like that, how much more is God holding on to you? And there is no thing and there is no one that can pry his fingers apart and let you go. Verses six to eight are incredible. My friends, remember God's promises. Spend time reading God's word. Spend time memorizing the verses that stand out to you. Spend time soaking in God's word so that when difficulty comes, you might know it. When Jesus was um, met by Satan out in the desert, he doesn't break into some logical defense. He just starts quoting scripture back at the enemy. So Moses has this incredible moment with God. Verses two to eight, just jaw-dropping in power. He must be feeling energized. Please hit the next slide, Daniel. But Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, and they didn't listen because of their broken spirit and their harsh slavery. As one commentator said, God's great I will was met with the Israelites' great nope. But this is, in a way, it's good news for us. In a way, we're reminded that as excited as we are and we've taken the Alpha course and we've, we've done the Invitational Life and we do a, a six-week sermon series on inescapable mission and we're all fired up and we're thinking everyone's gonna respond to the good news of Jesus. How can they not? It's incredible news. And then our friends look at us and go, not interested. Verse nine tells us why. They have a broken spirit and harsh slavery. Theologians actually have a term for this. They call it the doctrine of inability where people just can't see how great the good news of Jesus is. But God's not done. He's, there's three things he wants to say to Moses, and that was just the first. Not only does God want you to remember his promises, God also, also wants you to remember your position. This is verses 10 to 13. So the Lord said to Moses, go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. Why would Pharaoh listen to me? I'm just a man of uncircumcised lips. 
But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. We arrive in verse 14 and there's a short genealogy and we read about the sons of Reuben and the sons of Simeon and the sons of Levi. In a sermon covering two and a half chapters, you're probably thinking, oh, Dave will just skim over that. It's the best part. Verses 10 to 30 are something called a chiasm. And if you're thinking, Dave, I am a long ways away from English class when I was in high school, this is what a chiasm is. It's a repetition of similar ideas in reverse sequence. Repetition of similar ideas in reverse sequence. In the scriptures, the middle part of a chiastic structure is always the most important. So a little bit of English, some awesome work of God. Next slide, please. Check this out. Verses 10 to 12 and 28 to 30, the outside of the chiasm, are both God speaking to Moses. In both these verses, look at the phone or the Bible in front of you. You'll notice they're almost word for word identical. God says to Moses, go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. In both instances, Moses replies, I'm a man of uncircumcised lips. Some of your translations will say, I'm a man of faltering lips. In verses 13, in verses 26 to 7, God says, okay, now I'm gonna put my attention on Moses and Aaron together. And in both sets of these verses, God says, I chose you to bring my people out of Egypt. Then we have 10 verses right in the middle of a genealogy. And people in the first service said, oh, I always skip that. But why is it there? Three words, God chose you. My friends, remember your position. Israel had 12 sons. The oldest son is Reuben, that's verse 14. Here's a couple of his kids. The second son is Simeon, that's verse 15. Here's a couple of his kids. The next nine verses, I believe it is, is here is Levi and all of his kids. And out of all of his kids, Moses and Aaron, I chose you. For Moses and Aaron, God is saying, I told Abraham way back in Genesis chapter 15 that there would be 400 years of slavery. If you have the verses in front of you, count them out. I think it's 133, 133, and 137, if memory serves correct. It's 407 years of slavery. And God is saying, none of this surprises me. I chose you. Church, remember your position. Daniel, we did this first service, we'll do it second service. Here we go. Romans 8, 16 to 17, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit. We are God's children. If we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we might also share in his glory. Ephesians chapter one, God chose us before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless. In love, he predestined us, adopted as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ according to his great purpose. First John chapter three, dear friends, we are children of God and what we will be has not yet been made fully known, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. I understand genealogies can be dry. I totally get it. What's the purpose? Remember your position. Remember every single person who says, Jesus, I believe you died for my sins and I believe you triumphantly rose from the grave. You are a child of God. Remember your position. So God knows how devastating it was for the Israelites to go gather their own straw. He knows they've fallen into a pit of despair. So he reminds Moses of three things. Remember my promises. Remember your position. Remember 
my providence. Chapter seven, one to seven. The Lord said to Moses, see, I have made you like God to Pharaoh. And your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you. And your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know I am the Lord. When I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them, Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83. And they went and they spoke to Pharaoh. I can't imagine how difficult that would be. That Moses and Aaron at the end of chapter four felt confident that here are the people of Israel. Here are the elders of Israel. They are supporting me. They have responded exactly like God said they will. And now me and my brother are gonna go in to Pharaoh's palace. And we are going to say to Pharaoh himself, let my people go. Pharaoh goes, nope. And the foremen go in. And they say, Pharaoh, do you realize what you're doing here? Do you realize how difficult our life is? You're giving us the same coat of bricks, but there's no straw. How are we supposed to keep going? Pharaoh looks at them and says, you're lazy. Maybe work harder. Have you ever walked into your boss's office and you're a little bit nervous because you're gonna ask for a raise? And he looks at you and says, not this year, probably not next year either. Maybe you're a team leader, maybe you're middle management and, you, and your team has said to you, hey, can you talk to the boss? Like we're working 50, 60, 70 hours a week here. We can't keep doing this week in and week out. So you go in and your boss looks at you and says, sounds like a you problem. Go, inspire your team. I thought you wanted to be a leader. And God knows exactly how difficult this is for the people of Israel. And so God pulls Moses aside and he says to him, remember my promises, Remember your position. Remember my providence. I have provided for you in the past. I'm going to provide for you again. Now what's interesting, and nearly every English translation does this because we don't like how harsh the Hebrew or the Greek is from time to time. If you have an ESV, it'll say um, that Moses was like like God to Pharaoh. Some translations will say Moses was as God to Pharaoh. You know what the Hebrew says? Moses was God to Pharaoh. And God is looking at Moses and says, you are my divine instrument. Aaron will be your prophet. And Moses, Pharaoh's heart is gonna be hardened and he will eventually send out your people. When you feel like you're depressed, when you feel like the world is crumbling around you, do you believe God will rescue you? Do you believe that God will redeem you? Do you believe that God will use his power by his outstretched arm and rescue you? Because he's made that promise. You're reminded as your position as a child of God and he has provided for you time and time again. And if you look back at your history, you see God's providence. We always end with Jesus. Next slide, please. This is from chapter six, those I wills. I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of Egyptians and I will deliver you from slavery. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. 
Next week, we're going through nine of the 10 plagues. You will not want to miss it. It's going to be great. 1,500 years later, God stretches out his arm again. 1,500 years later, God says, I'm going to send my son on a rescue mission. And my son is going to redeem you. My son is going to buy you back. And Jesus Christ, by his own volition, said, I am going to die for all of God's people. And I'm going to stretch out my arms as wide as I can, not just for the nation of Israel, but for everybody who believes in me. And God's judgment doesn't come on a group of Egyptians. God's judgment doesn't even come upon us at that moment. God's judgment goes upon his son. And with outstretched arms, Jesus receives God's judgment. Why? Because God is buying us back. Remember God's promises. Remember your position as children of God. Remember God's providence that he will continue to provide for us every step of the way because here's the great news. You are God's divine instrument to be an ambassador to the world around us. And God has great plans for you to redeem a broken world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the story of Exodus. Thank you for this incredible reminder of what you've done for us. Because some of us are struggling right now. Some of us are wondering how we're going to pay our bills. Some of us are wondering if anybody cares on Thanksgiving. Some of us are wondering where to turn to. And through these two and a half chapters in Exodus, you are reminding us, remember my promises. Remember your position as children of the king. Remember my providence. God, may your will be done. And may you use us to be ambassadors of the good news of Jesus wherever you want us to go. We pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.